Our gracious God and, and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word and we ask that you would uh, nourish your people with it, that you would draw us closer to you, that where we need to be convicted, you would convict us, where we need to be encouraged and strengthened, uh, you would do that as well. Most of all, we ask that you would drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his cross, which is uh, the only hope of our salvation. And we just pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. I don't know if you can think of a, of a time in, in your life where you got away with something. You pulled a fast one on somebody. Maybe you were anticipating uh, getting in trouble. Maybe you did something that you know was wrong and you were, you were sure that you got, were going to get busted. And that sense of relief that you felt when you, when you got away with it. Maybe even a little bit embarrassment because you, you know you should have gotten in trouble. You weren't trying to get out of being in trouble, but you were thankful uh, that you got spared the consequences. I'm sure as young people, we all have things that we, we intentionally tried to get away with. Maybe you, you uh, were able to chuckle because you pulled a fast one over on mom and dad or you got away with something at school. And there's that, that sense of joy. I did it. I snuck through. I, I passed by the skin of my teeth. If they only knew. When it comes to real life, when it comes to, stand, to standing before God, we will not get away with things. There will not be these secret things that we did that we, that we pulled a fast one over. That, that because no one knows, I got away with it. But rather, all of our secrets are laid bare before God. And there is a judgment before God that everyone will stand and give an account. And the only way we will pass the judgment is through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. But God in that judgment will show no partiality, no favoritism. No, well, I always liked you best, so I'll give you an easy pass on this one. I won't be as tough or as fair as I am with the other people that are here at the judgment. The main point this morning is simply from our passage, my life will be judged. My life will be judged. I will answer for how I live my life. I will give an account for my works, how I behaved. I will stand before the judgment of God exercised out by the Lord Jesus Christ, my life will be judged. And so we're going to work through this passage and try to see it where Paul is going and what we can learn from it. But first this morning, God's judgment on my life will lead to one of two outcomes. And you'll notice here in verses 6 through 10, there are two types of people. Those who make it through the judgment, who will give eternal life, and those who have been following evil and wickedness and will be judged with wrath and torment. So Paul lays out for us in this passage the principle for judgment. In other words, what is the standard, if you will? Paul lays out principles for judgment. Look at verse 6. He, God, will render to each person according to his works. Now, we are saved only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but this does not change the principle of judgment. Judgment is according to works. This is a a general principle that we find throughout Scripture. And at the judgment, 
all will be evaluated and judged by God. So you might want to write some of these verses down if you'd like to look them up at a later point. But Matthew 16, 27, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Notice that language there. Second Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive his due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 2.22, he's speaking specifically of a a rebellious prophetess who he nicknames Jezebel. But he says this, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each according to his works. So we are saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, justification by faith alone. But we do have to give an answer for how we've lived our lives. Uh, For the believer, it will not be judgment unto death, but it will be a judgment unto rewards. But notice again, this repeated theme, I will judge each according to his works. First Peter 1.17 says this as well. If you call on him as father who judges impartially. Now, this is particularly to the believer. If you call on him, God, as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So notice he says that if you call God your father who judges impartially, how does he judge? According to each one's deeds. Those who seek good then will receive immortality in our passage in Romans. And those who obey evil will receive wrath. I just want to walk you through the language before we back up and say, okay, what does this mean? There are two outcomes at the judgment. Judgment unto life and judgment unto death. We see this elsewhere in scripture. John chapter 5. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have, go, uh, have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 25, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then in a few verses later, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Paul is essentially teaching the same thing here. There are two groups, if you will. Look in Romans chapter 2, verse 7. Those who, by patience and well-doing, seek the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. In verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does 
good. This is very similar to the language in John chapter 5, or at least the idea is that there will be those who come out in the good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Group 2 in Romans chapter 8, or excuse me, Romans chapter 2, verse 8. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. You'll notice this repetition here of to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The idea is that God will judge everyone. God will judge all human beings. All men and women will be judged. It is analogous to, you'll remember, back in Romans 1.16, when Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. It doesn't matter who you are. The only way of salvation is, is through the Lord Jesus Christ. It also doesn't matter who you are, your Jew, your Greek, whatever your background might be, wherever you've come from in life, everyone will stand before God on the day of judgment. And this is important in the argument that Paul is building in Romans 1 through 3, where he is, he is leading up to this culmination of all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The ultimate idea is that everyone will be judged and no one can stand before God in and of themselves of their own righteousness. And then he will turn and point us to Christ. There are two views on this passage as Paul talks about the judgment. And I want to unflesh this for you, unpack this for you a little bit. One is what we might call the hypothetical view. And and I'm apologize for getting a little bit technical here and breaking some of this down, but, it, but it's important to understand how people look at these passages. And then I'll try to explain to you where, how we are to think of this. So in the hypothetical view, they specifically say that this idea here of receiving glory and honor is just hypothetical. Um, there is an aspect of this that is true. Paul is talking about how God judges here, not how people Pass the judgment. He's talking about the standard that lays out. And so the hypothetical view says, since no one does good on the principle laid out in verses seven through ten, no one will pass the judgment. Now, this view is certainly correct when we think that about the fact that no one is saved on the basis of good works. In other words, I'm not going to have my own good works, my own obedience to the works of the law, as Paul will say, that are going to leave me justified before God. But Paul is laying out the principle. He says the same principle in verse 13b. The doers of the law will be justified. In other words, it's not just enough to hear the commands and the word of God if you don't keep them. Only by keeping them... Can you even think of passing God's judgment? And then he'll go on to say, the problem is no one keeps them. This is certainly true in verse in chapter three as well. Verses 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, it says speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law. 
no human being will be justified in his sight. He's saying that by trying to obey God and keep his commands, you will never become righteous in God's eyes. You and I just are not good enough. Romans chapter 3, 28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We would say you are saved by faith alone without doing any good works, meaning your good works do not contribute to the righteousness you have by God. And yet, good works are important to those who have been saved. So the second view on this passage is that there is a real judgment that applies to believers and unbelievers both, a judgment according to works. I want you to notice something. Look down with me, if you will, at verse 8. In verse 8 it says, But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And then in verse 9, those who do evil. This is talking about those who are trapped in their sins. All of us who are who are dead in our sins. This is what we do. We follow the course of this world. We are by nature, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verse three, children of wrath. And we do these sins. This is the judgment that awaits each and every person. However, then notice how he talks about those who receive Glory and honor as described. They're described in verse six or excuse me, verse seven to those who are patient in well doing or we could even say doing good things. Those who are patient in doing good things seek for glory and honor and immortality. Now, notice there that what he, he does not say those who obey righteousness. He said those who disobey unrighteousness. But then he says, in contrast, Those who seek, those who seek glory and honor and immortality, and they seek it through patience, with with patient enduring, uh, desiring to do well-being. They seek glory and immortality. The contrast is between those who seek God and his good gifts and those who are, in verse 8, selfish and disobedience. Now, we know in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, that what? No one seeks God, right? No one follows God. No one does these works of the law perfectly. So if there are people in this passage, as he describes it, who are seeking glory and honor and immortality, how are they seeking it? They're seeking it Through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a patient, enduring fruit of good works that comes from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the day of judgment, that will be made manifest. Eternal life will come to you, not because you were good, but because through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you sought God. And in seeking God, he cultivated habits in you. Now, your standard for passing the judgment is only ever Jesus Christ. But those who are in Jesus Christ will produce fruit in this life. And the judgment will not validate that per se, but but make those things manifest. 
that God really did do a good work in you. And you won't pass through the judgment saying, look how good I am. You will walk into the presence of God and say, I am only here because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and those things that he did in me. I want you to notice a few other verses in Scripture. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end or its outcome is eternal life. Romans 6.22. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, but sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8, 6. But the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Galatians chapter 6, for the one who sows by to his own flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Is Paul there when he talks about sowing and reaping, telling us we earn our salvation? Absolutely not. You might as well throw out the whole rest of the book of Galatians if that's what you think he is getting at. But what he is saying is that those who have been justified, there will be Marks of sanctification, a, a growing in the fruit of the Spirit that comes along. And after that comes along, as you live your life, you will go into heaven. That, that this is the path that gets walked. That a normal Christian should produce fruit. The fruit is it not what gets you saved. The fruit is not what vindicates you. In the day of judgment. But the fruit is a product of the salvation that you have. And the day of judgment will bear those things. As you have been walking for the Lord, trying to honor God with your life, you receive in the eternal life crowns of glory and honor, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done in you and through you. There are two aspects of salvation that are inseparable. But the first, but they need to be distinct, right? Justification. I am declared righteous. I pass the judgment of God even now from the moment that I believe. In Christ, I am declared righteous. But then there is the second aspect, sanctification. He will work in me and bear fruit. And, and these two go together They are inseparable, but they are distinct. Let me try to flesh this out for you in an analogy. And and admittedly, it is a very imperfect analogy, as analogies are. But I like trains. When I was a kid, my grandmother lived near the train tracks. And we would run down to the train whenever we heard the whistle. uh, And particularly, every now and then, uh, uh, a steam engine would come by. Uh, This was in the day and age where they didn't use them, so it would be like special train trips. And I remember one time we hopped in the car of my grandfather and drove. We we hit like 90 miles an hour to get to the train track one time to hit to to see this uh, train that was coming through. He loved trains too. And and in the old days, at the end of every train was what? 
caboose. And when you saw the cars coming, you knew what was coming. What was coming? The caboose. We used to wait for you. you I love seeing the cabooses because especially when they were different colors, you know, you'd want to see. You'd want to see. You didn't care about the cars. You wanted the caboose. Think of eternal life like that caboose. And on the train, you have the engine that pulls the train. And what is coming at the end of the train? You have the caboose. And when you look at that train and when you see it go by, what do you see? You see the cars that are passing along. Do you look at those cars and say, wow, these cars are pulling the caboose? That's kind of a trick question, right? Well, in a sense, they are on the chain that is connecting the engine to the caboose. But what is, what is driving the train? What is the engine of the train? Where is all the horsepower coming from? We would not look at those cars and say, those cars are responsible for bringing the caboose by us. We would say, that's the engine. Justification by faith. Salvation only in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the engine that brings eternal life. I am saved only in Jesus Christ. And no one will stand in the day of judgment and pass the judgment unless they know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is the non-negotiable. You don't have a train if you don't have the engine. And, and of course, you know, guys that are really into trains, you know, you keep track of the engines, what size they are, what color they are, how many wheels they have. You know, you have um, the steam engines have all kinds of classifications based on wheel number and size and patterns. And we won't, we won't get into that. But the, the train engine matters. But there is a sense that a normal train has cars. Someone who is saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the normal pattern of their life as we are waiting for eternal life, as we are waiting for this caboose to come. You know, scriptures speak of us having eternal life now, but there's also this aspect of we're just waiting for it. Um, You're not eternal yet. You're not in your eternal state. You have the gift But there's still the rest of it that's supposed to come. And as you wait for it, these are like the cars that are that are coming along. They are good works. They are are fruit of the spirit. And and what is the outcome of the fruit of the spirit? Well, at the end of the train is the caboose. So when you pull up to the track and you see cars coming along, even if it's a long train, you can assume the engine is down there at one end and the caboose is, well, we don't use them anymore, but if we did, the caboose is coming on the other end. You can know the caboose is coming when you see the cars on the train, but you don't give credit to the cars on the train. Now think of this language here in verse 8, verses 6 through 8. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience in well-doing, seek good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. There is this aspect that, according to, there is an evaluation of our life, and our life will be consistent, in a general way, with the outcome. If we have sought the Lord, if we have sought the, the heaven and the glory and the honors and it's manifested itself in our life, there will be eternal life on the day of judgment. Paul never says that it is 
on account of good works that we are saved through this judgment. He never says that it is from our good works that we receive eternal life. But he does say it is according to that our good works in our life are in line with what is coming. They are in line with the truth of the engine that is pulling the train. You and I as believers should be concerned with the day of judgment. First, do I know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior? That is the only way we pass the judgment. But we are never to take that truth and say, this is great, I can live however I want. Paul will say later in Romans chapter 6, shall I go on sinning so that grace may abound? And then he says, by no means. He's saying, absolutely not. Just as a train pulls cars, so salvation in Christ pulls fruit. And the outcome of that fruit, the end of that fruit, is that one day the, the caboose comes by. You receive the eternal life. What is, what is in you now in just snippets that, that God is making you like Christ. And, and it is certainly, absolutely imperfect. None of us are perfect, even in our attempts to obey. But there are aspects. There is a seeking of God now in this life because Jesus Christ has saved me. What is, what is in us in, in little, sh- uh, sh- uh, just in little pieces at the day of judgment in a resurrected body, it is manifest in me fully. And it won't be because I was good enough or I lived the good life. It will be because Christ saved me and Christ was formed in me and I am now glorified in Christ. There is absolutely in the scriptures salvation by faith alone and at the same time judgment according to works. You don't trust your good works to get you past the judgment. You trust Christ. But you also can expect that he who began a good work in you will carry it through until the day of judgment when you receive glory from the Lord. Unless you think uh, I'm parting from Reformed theology and good Christian uh, doctrine, the Westminster Confession of Faith even says that good works are, quote, the fruits and evidences. Then it goes on to say, lining up that the believers are God's workmanship, quote, created in Christ Jesus For these things and having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life, meaning you are saved in Jesus Christ. You become a a creation to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 and the outcome of these things, the the end result, the, the caboose that comes along after the cars is eternal life. Now, we all know there's people that die uh, shortly after they're saved, and they are saved. The thief on the cross, Jesus says, um, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't say, well, that guy's not going to get very far in heaven because he didn't have good works. No, he's saved by the blood of Christ. 
But the normal pattern is, if you get saved and you are living here on earth for a period of time, you should be concerned to say, is Christ bearing fruit in my life? And that will be evaluated. That should be a concern for us. Think of another example. So we had the the silly train example, but now let's be a little more serious and one from Scripture. Matthew 25, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, what does he say? The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation for the world. Then what does he say? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you a sick person in prison and visit you? And then Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of one of these, you've done for me. What is Jesus doing there? Is he saying that you, you get into heaven by, by who you give water to? If that were the case, we'd, we'd all be like filling giant buckets up and running around on the street. And you need this water because I'm not going to get into heaven unless you. No, that's that's not what he's saying. But he is saying the fruit that you had in your life, that you believed in me, that the kingdom was prepared for you from before the foundations of the world. The behavior of the kingdom manifested itself in your life. And on the day of judgment, he announces those things. We're not perfect. We never get into heaven uh, on our own abilities. Even, even the things that I do through the Holy Spirit now as a Christian, I don't get into heaven because of those things. But the normal Christian life will manifest itself in normal, godly, imperfect, but growing, godly fruit of the Spirit, and Christian behavior. And the end result of that is I'm in heaven. Not because of me. Not because of the path I've walked. But because of what Christ has done. And when Christ saves us in this earth, that work manifests itself in the here and now. Think of how this unfolds in the context. A couple things. Notice that Paul is driving at that we are not superior to other people. He's talked about you can't judge other people and do the same sins. God doesn't let evil off the hook. He's talked about a few verses earlier in verses 3 and 4 that the kindness of God was to lead us to repentance. Repentance bears fruit. Impenitence leads to wrath. Then he lays out here that this principle is according to the, of judgment is according to works. Either you repent, which leads you to seeking the things of God and bearing fruit, or you continue in obeying unrighteousness and you are condemned. You have the hard and penitent heart. And then in verses 12 through 13, he lays out the principles of judgment. And this is our second point this morning, that God does not show does God does not show partiality. God is impartial. God shows no partiality. Verse 11. 
For God shows no partiality. Could I, could I say that enough times there? Look at how Scripture lays this out for us. You and I don't get off the hook because we're nice people. He is speaking to Jews here who are saying, you know, we have the law. Paul says, so what? So what? The general principle is judgments according to works. And guess what? Just because you say you've read your Bible doesn't mean anything. Just because you say, well, you know, I'm a good Jewish person. I was born under the covenant. I was circumcised on the eighth day. As Paul would say, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees advancing beyond my years. So what? As Paul found out as he saw the Lord Jesus on the Damascus road. Paul is taking the judgment serious here so that we would understand none of us pass the bar of judgment. Even those things, those seeking after goodness and righteousness which result in eternal life, none of us do it. We can't pass the judgment in and of ourselves. God isn't going to play favorites. Another way you could say this is, is God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't Show partiality. And another way you could, could say it again, you know, he doesn't pick favorites. You think of how sometimes uh, parents uh, have their favorite kid and they let that one kid get off on all the all things and then they're really hard on the other child. God doesn't play that way. And so he says in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What is he talking about here? He's saying, if you are a Gentile in this context, and you didn't have the Old Testament Torah, the law, you've never read it, you haven't gone to synagogue, you haven't been circumcised under it, you're still going to face the judgment. You're not judged by the things that you don't know. But look at what he says uh, in verse 14, if you will. Um, For the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. Someone that has never seen a copy of the Bible, has never heard the Ten Commandments, will not be able to stand before God on the Day of Judgment and say, God, I didn't know that murder was a sin. I didn't know that stealing was wrong. I didn't know that I should worship you alone. You never told me those things. What does Paul say? The unbeliever has by nature the works of the law written on them. Why? They are made in the image of God. As Paul has said in chapter 1, they know God, but suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You will not be able to stand before God and say on the day of judgment, I didn't know the law, therefore you can't accuse me of breaking it. Because you had a conscience. Why, why is it that in, in so many different cultures, we, we do have, in different cultures, you do have some uh, differences in what they think is moral. But why is it that, by and large, every culture throughout the world knows that murder is wrong? 
Most cultures, I'm open to someone saying there's one somewhere that doesn't, but most cultures know that stealing is wrong. They have some kind of, of system of, of honor, of things that, are, that bring shame to you. Why is that? Where does that come from? It comes from being made in the image of God. And you will be accountable for that. That, that God has made his divine attributes and eternal nature known in his creation. And you rejected that. If you have the law, if you've read your Bibles, you're held to that standard as well. Look with me again, if you will, in in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So sinning under the law is particularly having the commands, being in this context uh, Jewish and and, and inside uh, the Old Covenant here. And then he says in verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law that will be justified. This is like in Leviticus 18.5 where it says, Therefore you shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Or in Deuteronomy, blessings for those who obey, curses for those who disobey. What is Paul saying there? You don't get off the hook of judgment because you know your Bible. Let me just fast forward to what the application would be today. Of course, in this context, we're talking about people who are Jewish and under the covenant and circumcised and all those things. But someone who grows up in Sunday school, that doesn't make you more righteous than someone who doesn't. In fact, if anything, it certain it's kind of heightens the judgment. Sometimes when my kids get in trouble, and I'm not trying to embarrass my kids, they always say it's embarrassing when your pastor's kid and get used. But but sometimes you have uh, an older one and a younger one, right? And the older one you've said the rule to, and the younger one you didn't say the rule to, and they both broke the rule. And what do you say to the older one? You should know better because I told you, right? What do you say to the younger one? Do you, do you let them off the hook? I mean, if it's serious enough, you say to them, you're smart enough that you should have known better. You know we don't let you eat cookies after uh, you get home from school. What made you think it was any different? I may not have told you the rule, but you know enough about me to know that you don't go doing that. I may have never specifically said, don't hit your brother or your sister or whatever, but you know we don't do that. It's the same sort of principle here. If you have the Bible, if you have the Word of God, you know because you've seen, you've read, and how much more accountable you are. You don't get to go to heaven and and say to God, well, I I should be allowed in because I brought my Bible to church every Sunday. So what if you don't do it? And this is the way that Paul is leading us to say nobody is justified by their works. That salvation is only in Christ. You don't get to say, I was a good Christian because I came to church. I did this. I did that. That's why God should let me in. You're only a Christian. You only pass through the judgment if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same token, 
if no one ever shared the gospel with you, if you never picked up a Bible, like if, like if you were one of these people, even, even sometimes in America, you have people that they just don't want to know. They just don't care. They could go down the street and buy a Bible, and they're just like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. You don't get to go to God and just, well, my whole life I, I didn't know God. La, 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 I wasn't listening. How can you, how can you punish me now? You knew. You were made in his image. You had a conscience. You rejected it. You suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. Where does Paul end this passage? Look at verse 16. On the day, and this is continuing with his thought here when the judgment happens, on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. How is the judgment part of the gospel? The gospel means good news. Judgment, and the idea of judgment is inherently bad news. Particularly when you start thinking through what is the principle that God is going to judge by, and then you take an honest evaluation of your life and you say, yeah, I really am wretched. If you read through Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, you see the list of sins. If you read through Romans chapter 2, you start to see Paul attacking uh, the good Jewish moral person. That their cover is, they cannot hide behind their morals or what they think is their status. Paul gets both classes of people. The, the, the person that thinks they're good in God's eyes and the person that knows they're not good in God's eyes. How is the judgment then good news? Good news has the connotation of a royal announcement. And what is Paul announcing in the gospel? He is announcing that Jesus is king. He is announcing that Jesus is Lord. And so he says, according to my gospel, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, how? By Christ Jesus. Jesus is the judge. And that is awesome. That is good news because it means Jesus is the king. It means Jesus is the Lord. Think of how great that is, that God took the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross. He resurrected from him from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sat him down at the right hand and said, I'm putting all things under your feet and you will one day judge all of creation. That is good news because it says the king is on the throne. And the response to that is repent. Psalm chapter two says, The Lord has installed his son in Zion. And then what does it say at the end of the psalm? Kiss the son lest he be angry. Repent. Bow before him. Turn the heart. If you have any hope of passing the judgment, come before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him and repent. Because he's the judge. And it's good that he's the judge because it shows his kingship. But the only way you will be saved by the judge is if his blood has covered your sins. Now, the great thing about salvation is that from the moment you believe, you have it. You already have that verdict now. 
And that verdict doesn't change. That's what justification by faith means. God declares you righteous because of who Jesus is and what he's done. But there still is a coming judgment. And Paul, when he preaches the gospel, particularly in Acts 17, he is at the Areopagus in, in the, the city of Athens. He's amongst all of these pagans. He's, he sees this idol to the unknown God. And what does he say? At the end of his preaching, he says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And to this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you believe that Christ rose from the dead? I would imagine that all of us, most of us here today would say, yeah, of course, I believe it. That resurrection is proof, is testimony, is certainty to you and I that the judgment will come. And Christ judges us in humanity as the one who has been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, all of that is awesome, but it drives us to the cross. And that really is the the main point we want to drive home. He will judge my life. Does that drive you to the cross? We sing the song, My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me. For me he died. For me he died. He lives an everlasting life and light. He freely gives. I will be judged according to works. But I will only ever be saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes as believers, we don't take the judgment seriously. We don't need to cower in fear and not go out of the house because we're terrified of God. We belong to God if we are a believer in Him. At the same time, we are not to use our our position in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and being a child of the King. We are not to use it to go out there and just live however we want and conduct any Uh, conduct our lives in any kind of way with any kind of sin and frivolousness. We should be concerned. Is my life bearing fruit? Am I living in a manner that's consistent with my confession of faith? And do I anticipate the judgment? It keeps us grounded. It keeps us trusting in Christ. We are never to become people who brag. People who think that we are better than other people. Well, I'm going to pass the day of judgment and you're not. God hates you, you vile, filthy, wicked sinner. I, you and I, were vile, wicked, filthy sinners. And Christ saved us. And if there is any fruit 
that becomes manifest on the day of judgment and is revealed, it's because Christ did the work. Christ has washed me and cleaned me and sanctified me. On the one hand, God will judge. On the other hand, trust Christ. Trust what God has provided in Christ. Because you will hear on the day of judgment, if you believe in Christ, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. You gave water to people. You fed people. You loved people. Well done. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, just a very uh, tough topic today. As we look at your word and we say the judgment is coming, as we look at our hearts and, and say we know we have nothing in and of ourselves to pass that judgment. And yet we do know not only do you save us, but you continue to work good in us and through us. And we marvel at that. Lord, let us not become confident in ourselves. Let us not become cocky. And in soberness, and as the scriptures say, with fear and trembling, let us work out our salvation because you have done such a great and mighty work in us. Help us to walk in your ways. We never earn it. But Lord, live us to lead lives that continually put on display your grace and how glad we are to have your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for this last song.